นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดามังสังฆังนามสังIn the middle of it, there's a four-line stanza, which is uh, generally considered, uh, at least many consider it as the absolute core of the Buddha's teachings. And so, um, in Pali, this four-line stanza says, "Sabba pa pa sa akaranang kusala sa upasampada." Satchita Pariyotapanang Etang Bhutana Sasanang, which translates as refraining from wrongdoing, cultivating wholesomeness, purifying the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas, and notice that that last line there. This is the teaching of the Buddhas, which my understanding is this is because it's the teaching of all the Buddhas, not just our Buddha, who was the fifth in the line of Buddhas. This is this teaching is so core, so central. It doesn't sound necessarily profound when you just. Rattle it off like that. Refrain from wrongdoing. Cultivate wholesomeness. Purify the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. However, if we stop and really look at it, this is the the code for this path of practice. If we want to, if we want to analyze the spiritual life. As taught by the Buddha, this is it. And I'm not sure if it's proper to suggest that one line, <clears throat> one line of the Buddha's teaching, is more important than the others. But it occurs to me that in this four-line stanza, that line three there, which says "purify the heart," this is this is the very core. Purification of the heart—that's what this is all about. Purification of awareness, purification of consciousness. Lots of different teachers, lots of different traditions talk about the spiritual journey in different ways. This is how the Buddha talked about it. He talked about jitta pawana, or cultivating the jitta, cultivating awareness. And cultivation means not creating it. You don't have to create awareness. But purifying awareness can be purified, or it can be polluted. Uh, 
and when awareness is polluted, then our seeing, our way of knowing, is distorted, is disfigured. It's not that there's anything wrong with the world, and the Buddha and all the great awakened beings lived in the same world that we live in, and they didn't suffer. Why didn't they suffer? Because they could see clearly. Their awareness was purified. So that's our work, that's our practice, that's our effort. And yet the Buddha didn't just say, purify your heart, that's it. He also elaborated on that and said, well, there are steps, there are stages, there's work to be done as well. And that's what the first two lines, I think we can understand them as, this is what needs to be done if we want to purify the heart. We might believe in purifying the heart, that's like believing in climbing Mount Everest. You know, other people have done it. I can believe it's possible, but does that mean to say I can do it? Well, actually, I couldn't do it. There's no question about that. I'm not prepared. I don't have anything like the physical uh, ability to climb Mount Everest. And even if one was to develop the physical ability to climb Mount Everest and other people have done it and, and we believe that it's possible, there's more to it than that. Also, you need the right weather conditions. You also need the right nutriment. You can't just pop up to the summit of Mount Everest and back down again in a few hours. More than that. So this effort that we're making, all of us have the sense that merely addressing the deficiencies or the limitations on the material level is not the solution. There are things that need to be done on the material level, on the level of form, on the, the, the way we deal with matter, the way we deal with the environment, the way we deal with social structures, the way we deal with conventions. Yes, there's work to be done on that level. However, there's more than that to do. And that is working on consciousness. Earth, air, fire, water and space, that's the five elements. As far as the Buddha was concerned, there's six elements. There's consciousness, there's awareness. Earth, air, fire, water, space and consciousness. If we don't understand that, then we can be investing all our time and effort into working on the elements, on the levels of earth, air, fire, water and space and wondering why this is not working. And why is it not working? Well, because there's this level of awareness, this level of consciousness, this element that the Buddha emphasized needs to be cultivated. When on this dimension, things are not aligned accurately with reality, then we suffer. So at least to some degree, we all have confidence in that. And so we engage in this work. And we're interested in the practice purifying the heart. And so this core teaching, is really relevant. I would say we can't, we can't contemplate this teaching too often. So... Why does it start, the first line, why does it start with refrain from wrongdoing? Why doesn't it start with believe in ultimate reality or 
believe in the Buddha's teachings. It starts with what we can actually do, not just what we can do, but what we need to do if we want to take seriously this possibility of purifying the heart, of realizing what the Buddha said can be realized. Perfect wisdom, perfect compassion. Perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, that is the activity of the purified heart. And just believing in perfect wisdom, perfect compassion is not going to get us there. That's, there's, a, there's a more profound dynamic at play. So this first line, refraining from wrongdoing, one way of understanding this is, I like to think of if you, if you were to, if you had a, a really good idea for a startup and and you were convinced, and other people were convinced that this was going to work. This would be a this would be a successful business. And how do we approach that? Well, one of the first things we do is say, where are we going to get the resources? Where are we going to get the energy? Where are we going to get the money to do the startup? We might have an excellent idea, but we need money. We need resource. And so, what do we do? Well, one thing is we stop wasting money. You stop going on holidays, restraining the expenditure so that we can generate energy. If we want to engage in this work of purification, we need energy. And one of the ways of generating energy is through restraint. It is a particular sort of work. It's not... There's, like other work, like studying to understand something, that's one sort of work. But this work of exercising restraint, being able to inhibit our conditioned impulses, our conditioned reactions, particularly in this case, our impulses towards wrongdoing. If we can't do that, then whatever else we might be doing in practice, whatever study we might be doing, whatever retreats we might be going on, whatever great, wise, amazing people we might have the good fortune to spend time with, if we don't know how to inhibit our impulses towards wrongdoing, then the other activities are going to be compromised. And so I was thinking about this earlier, and what came to my mind was, was uh, also if you're a sports person and you've got an important game. In fact, I was thinking about when, when the Rugby World Cup was happening in this country some years ago and, and the All Blacks were here and they were just streaming through all the preliminaries and everybody was just so impressed with these amazing All Blacks, just game after game and such nice fellows and it was all going absolute swimmingly. And, and uh, then just before the finals, they decided they'd go for a holiday to Italy and... They came back and then they lost. And if we don't know how to inhibit the impulse towards heedlessness, then we lose out. And this is not a small thing. It can be more inspiring to dwell on loving kindness, and dwelling on loving kindness is clearly encouraged. However, it's essential that we have this ability to 
say no to our heedless impulses and, and say no in the right way, not in a condemning, judgmental way. Uh, we, we, we probably know how to do that, how to give ourselves a hard time and judge ourselves. And that's very initial approach to inhibiting heedless impulses. We need to get more subtle than that. The compulsive judging mind is a very brutal activity of mind. And if we're going to really make progress on this journey, we need to get a handle on that, we need to see that we've been programmed in this way to be compulsively judgmental. It's not because we're bad. We're not bad because we're always judging ourselves and judging each other. It's, uh, it's a result of how we've been programmed. If you look at how we were brought up and how we were taught at school, the, the discriminative intelligence is worshipped. Uh, how, much, how much education did we get in what could be called unitive intelligence? Yeah. Letting go of that discriminating mind letting go of taking sides, letting go of judging. How much education? Were we even taught that it was a possibility to let go of it? Or did we, in fact, make that capacity for discriminating a sense of self? That's, uh, the, the more we can discriminate, the more points we get, the more praise we get. And So I think it's a... A really important aspect of coming to understand this very first line of this teaching that inhibiting all wrongdoing, refraining from all wrongdoing, we need to not just willfully grit our teeth and say, I've got to stop eating too much in the meal, and I've got to mind my speech and stop saying nasty things to people. We need to be more subtle on that and that dramatic compulsive controlling effort is an expression of our delusion me going to fix myself so fortunately we have these teachings that Buddha gave us you know, exercising mindfulness exercising uh, indriya sangra or skillful restraint with mindfulness then we can actually watch the tendencies the tendencies to judge ourselves like when, when we're lining up to receive our meal in the morning and you're feeling hungry and you can smell the delicious food and you can't wait to just get in there and start eating and Inhibiting wrongdoing is not just gritting your teeth and pretending that you don't feel like you want to pick out. It's actually stopping and watching how, how much we create a struggle over these things by judging ourselves. We don't, have to, we don't have to be judging ourselves. We can just watch it. And even the compulsive judging mind we can watch. 
call it by its name, say compulsive judging mind. Of course there's this compulsive judging tendency. Whenever I make a mistake, oh, there I go again. <laughs> judging. So instead of believing in it, can we just step back and say, oh, call it by its name, compulsive judging mind. Of course, the mind was programmed this way. This is how it is. But we can watch it. We can watch it. And in so doing, we learn some skillful inhibition, some skillful restraint. So refraining from wrongdoing is a way of gathering energy, generating momentum, so we have the resources to engage in this spiritual journey and do this work. And also learning how to apply attention so that the act of restraining is not just another act of brutality, of driving ourselves further into a state of uh, fragmentation. This discriminating mind that we are so identified with that causes us so much trouble, it creates so much fragmentation in our hearts, in our minds, and, and in our bodies. You know, we, we've got tension in our shoulders and then we judge the tension in our shoulders. Or we feel anxiety in the pit of our stomach and then we judge the anxiety. We need to be more subtle than that. We need to be more gentle than that. And talking about being gentle, we can move on to the second line of this wonderfully clear teaching and cultivate that which is wholesome. We could, again, if we are not careful, approach this in another judging sort of way. I'm not good enough, I've got to become good. Well, remember, let's remember the Buddha said all becoming is suffering. We're not talking about becoming good. However, goodness is like goodness is like fuel. If you or it's like nutriment. If you you've got a really good sapling that you want to plant and hope that it's going to grow into a beautiful tree and and we, we make sure that there's no bugs around, we clear the bugs away and do some companion planting so we don't get troubled by the bugs to eat the, the sapling and protect the sapling, maybe put some guards around it so the deer don't come and eat it. And, mm. However, if the soil is short on nutriment, is it going to grow? We need some compost, we need some nutriment for that sapling to grow. And likewise, on this journey, if we, if we have confidence that there is this work of purifying awareness and it's worth doing, other people have done it and realised the benefit, and realised perfect wisdom, perfect compassion. If we have faith, if we have confidence in that, we need to equip ourselves, prepare ourselves with the nutriment of goodness, of wholesomeness. And it's a certain sort of strength. And just, just as it is physically, you can be eating what you think is a good diet. However, if it's not, 
really balanced, mm. we can be becoming weak. We can be becoming weak. I mean, just, just one little ingredient like iodine, for instance. And it used to be the case many years ago that there's a lot of people around with a medical condition that's called a goiter. You very rarely see it these days. And I remember seeing one when I was living in rural Thailand many years ago. This woman with a goiter. It's like a, a huge, great big sack hanging from the neck. A very ugly thing. And what does it come from? It comes from a dysfunction of the thyroid gland and a lack of iodine. Very small amount of iodine is needed. These days, in this culture, for a lot of people get their iodine from salt. I mean, iodized salt is a normal thing. It's a very small thing. A small amount is needed. And if we don't have it, then we can get very sick. Well, we may have made some effort in keeping moral precepts and exercising skillful restraint and inhibiting impulses to follow heedlessness. And we may have great confidence in the possibility of purifying the heart. That awakening is possible. Liberation is a real thing. The human beings have done this. The Buddha did this 2,600-something years ago. May have great faith and, and be exercising some restraint with regards to heedlessness and wrongdoing. And there is this other thing that we need to pay attention to the cultivation of wholesomeness, the cultivation of goodness, and to see it as a, as a resource, as a nutriment. I mentioned gentleness there, and just because that seems to be, to my thinking and my experience, my personal experience in my own life, and, but also my observation living in a spiritual community for 40-something years, uh, mostly with men, to see how, despite great intelligence often on the part of many of these people and great confidence and tremendous energy, a lot of people throw themselves out of balance. They read what the Buddha said about strive on with diligence and but the way they're striving causes more imbalance and causes imbalance and harm for themselves and actually causes imbalance in the community and sometimes harm to other people. And a lot of hurt is caused in spiritual communities by a lack of gentleness. I'm not talking about being weak. It's just that if you, returning to our image of the sapling, if you're planting a, a sapling in the ground, it's very tender. You can't just throw it in. You can't just stamp around. You've got to be very careful how you handle that, that sapling. That sapling may have the potential to become a great, wonderful oak tree one day. However, when it's young, when it's new... It's tender and it's vulnerable. And all of us, as we embark on this spiritual journey, we've all 
been hurt by life. We're all carrying wounds with us. Some more deeply felt than others, but everybody is wounded. And as we engage the spiritual exercises, setting meditation for hours and trying to steward attention so that it reaches a level of collectedness so it's focused and, and clear and steady. We want to be able to read our own body and mind and exercising watchfulness, mindfulness, simplicity of eating, moral conduct, and the result is increased sensitivity. And if we don't appreciate that that means that we're susceptible to either being more hurt than we were before, then we can, as I said, throw ourselves even more out of balance. So a big part of cultivating goodness for a lot of us is learning how to be gentle in the right way. Not weak. Weakness is a hindrance. But gentle and kind. Kindness. Who of us can think about the kindness we've received maybe from our mother or our father or or our older siblings if we had them or our friends the kindness we've received who of us can think of the kindness we've received and not feel good kindness is nutriment forgiveness is another form of goodness that's really important because we all have woundedness because we all have delusion we all make mistakes we all say things that we regret and that cause hurt can we ask for forgiveness and can we forgive ourselves and others forgiveness is a thing forgiveness is a skill it's something that we can develop and something that the Buddha wanted us to develop kusalasa upasampada cultivate that which is wholesome, cultivate that which is good. And it's a particular sort of effort. It's a different sort of effort from sabbapapasa akarnang, from restraining from wrongdoing. That's one sort of effort. That's like, you know, you know, for children growing up, they go through the stage of what they call the terrible twos, where they just say no to everything. No, I'm not going to eat. No, I'm not going to go to bed. It's important for children to go through that stage. If they don't go through that stage, then later on in life they might end up with having difficulties with setting boundaries in their life and may even end up in substance abuse. And it's an important stage of development, learning how to be able to say no. It's important for parents to recognise and to let children go through the stage of learning how to say no. And in the spiritual journey, we need to learn how to say no. That's a particular stage, a particular thing, a particular aspect of this work, of this practice. And then there's the work of cultivating goodness, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, patience. That's a profoundly important 
form of goodness. We, we like to think that cultivating goodness is going to make us feel good, but mm, actually developing patience. <laughs> the thing about patience is you can never develop patience when you're having a good time. However, if we want to put a useful spin on it, whenever we're having a not good time, that is just the right time and place to develop the particular form of goodness that we call forbearance or patient endurance. When we're having a not good time, when our meditation feels like rubbish or maybe we physically feel unwell or maybe somebody is irritating us or the weather or the food, something's disagreeable, that is exactly the right environment for developing forbearance and patient endurance. It's a particular form of goodness, a particular form of nutriment, a particular form of strength. So if we understand these aspects, the inhibiting unwholesomeness, restraining wrongdoing, and then the place of building up our storehouse of goodness, of recognizing that we need this nutriment, and then the core of the core, satchita pariyotapanang, purifying the heart. And the distortions, the disfigurements of awareness manifest in different ways, different people, different times, different stages of life. But it can all be brought down to the consequences of being identified with the deluded sense of self. This is why the Buddha taught anatta, or not-self. This is not a philosophical statement, you know, believe in not-self. Rather, it's a cautioning, a warning, that wherever we cling to any condition and turn it into a sense of me and mine, there we are distorting awareness, there we're polluting consciousness, there we're creating the causes for suffering. Being identified with the sense of self. Beautiful, wonderful, inspired, imbued with faith, sense of self, or tragic, despairing, agonizing, depressed, remorseful sense of self. Any sense of self that we cling to, identify as, is going to lead to more suffering more greed, hatred and delusion. So we want to inform ourselves with an accurate understanding of what does it mean to purify the heart. This is one way of doing it. Where, when and how are we feeding this deluded sense of self? And that's something, again, it's not something we believe in, it's something we investigate. You know, in everyday life, maybe having a chat with your friend and telling a story about something and 
and then they feel they, they respond in a way whereby you feel praised. And, and to be alert to that, not to dismiss it as, oh, I shouldn't be feeding on the sense of praise. That's too superficial. What does it feel like to be praised? I gets constellated. I love being appreciated. I love being praised. I love being noticed. It feels like this. Not just in our heads. This is why it's so important to bring our practice into our body. Bring our awareness into the body. To read. What does it feel like to be dismissed? Everybody else in the room is receiving attention and praise and appreciation and you're being left out. What does it feel like to be dismissed? That is self. That is me. And we don't, again, I'm going to emphasize, we're not trying to stop believing in self, but we're studying, is this sense of self ultimate? Well, if it was ultimate, we couldn't know it. It's just like my hand, I can put my hand out and I can see it. There's the seeing, there's the knowing, there's a hand there. If it was me, if that hand was me, I couldn't see it. Put your hand out in front of you and say, that's a hand, that's my hand. But it's ultimately not me. It's not all there is to me. It's part of me, but it isn't all there is to me. So likewise, the feeling of being praised, the feeling of being blamed, the feeling of being successful, the feeling of being a failure feels like me, but what does this mean? And so studying the sense of self and noticing there is the noticing. There's not all there is to it. The sense of self can feel dramatically, powerfully me, but if we're skillful, if we're careful, if we're interested, see, well, there's something else going on there. There's this awareness of the sense of me. Now, if we get greedy at that point, and think that we've got to grasp this understanding of not-self that the Buddha talked about, we can spoil it. So that's why you know, that aspect of the teaching is talking about patient endurance, being patient, being modest, humility. These virtues, these forms of wholesomeness, these forms of goodness that nourish us on the path. If we've try to bypass them and just get to the greatest teachings, well, we might come across some great teachings, but not they may not be really applicable in our case. So, so studying the sense of self, not being in a hurry to understand it, but being interested, including, for instance, one of my practices over the years has been asking this question, who? Maybe in your meditation you find your mind reaches a stage of peacefulness that you're just enjoying and that's great, enjoy it. Be nourished by it, be refreshed by it, be renewed by it. However, if we're interested in not just the first two lines of this teaching, we're interested in the core, purifying the heart, then we can also at that point where we're sitting there maybe enjoying a relative level of peacefulness, gently inquire, who is peaceful? 
Or maybe there's some peacefulness, but there's some irritation there. This is still not enough. And, and then we could be judging that subtle form of suffering, that this is not enough. Or we could be gently inquiring, so who wants something more? Or who is asking these questions? And as we're saying with training ourselves to restrain our impulses towards wrongdoing, likewise this process of inquiring needs to be done very, very gently, very caringly. We're dealing with something very tender. The heart is very vulnerable and susceptible to being hurt. And yes, resilient. Yes, strong. But yes, tender, gentle kind, patience. And let's be careful in this approach of investigating self that we don't just make not-self into a thing. I was recently recollecting an interview between Pat Stoll. She became Sister Roach and the first Seeladurar in our community back in the very early days of Chithurst. And, and Pat Stoll was at the time visiting Ajahn Chah in Thailand and she asked this very interesting question. And she asked Ajahn Chah, she said, Lumpur, if there's no self, how can we be developing samadhi? And Lumpur Chah answered, he said, well, when you're developing samadhi, you're working with the sense of self. When you're developing vipassana, you're working with not-self. And then he went on to say that when you know what's what, you're beyond both self and not-self. So these four lines, refrain from wrongdoing, cultivate wholesomeness, purify the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Something that the records that we have in the Theravada tradition tell us of the teaching that the Buddha gave roughly 2,600 years ago. And here we are contemplating it today because it's still profoundly relevant. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Thank you.